Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The FT. Should you use your pension fund to pay off your mortgage? Investing in property through peer-to-peer lending. Is it safe and is it worth it? And the latest giant IPO that combines technology and China. But what do experts make of Alibaba? Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues, Joe Cumbo. Hello. And Kate Allen. Hello. Plus Chris Beecham, market strategist at IG Group. Hello. Now, as we doubtless all know by now, come next April, you'll be able to get access to all of your pension fund at the age of 55, without needing to buy an annuity. You should also be able to get free guidance on what your options are when you retire, although the exact shape and form of that guidance is yet to be finalised. One of the issues that's bound to come up, though, is whether cash accumulated in a pension should be used to pay off debts before using it for other purposes. The rapid rise in house prices, plus societal changes, people are getting married later and having children later, mean that it's becoming common to have a mortgage in your 50s or even your 60s. Normally, advisors would say that debt should always be reduced first, because unless you're very skillful or very lucky, the cost of servicing debt is likely to be higher than the returns you'll make from investing. But mortgage rates are abnormally low at the moment and seem likely to stay that way for a while. Does that change things? And if you've spent all your life building up a pension pot, shouldn't that really be used to provide for your retirement rather than paying off lingering debts? Joe Cumbo has been looking into this. Joe, I guess a lot of people currently use their 25% tax-free cash to clear any remaining debts. Is there evidence to suggest that people are entering retirement with bigger debts than, than previously? Well, a raft of evidence is continuing to be presented that people are entering retirement saddled with big debts. Research from retirement firm MGM Advantage uh, pr- produced uh, earlier in the year found that potentially more than 250,000 Britons uh, to retire with credit card, personal loan or overdraft debts of between 25000 and £100,000, which is quite chunky debt to enter retirement with. And research released also earlier this year found a fifth of over 65s had borrowed cash or expect to do so because their pensions are not sufficient to meet day-to-day expenses. So what are pensions experts, the sorts of people who might be providing guidance uh, in seven months' time, uh, saying about this? Should you reduce debt first or should you 
use your pension for what you saved it for? For most people, there is a greater flexibility to use those savings to clear off debt. And one of those big debts at retirement is loans and mortgages. There's a particular concern emerging that borrowers with interest-only loans maturing over the next few years may come under pressure to use those pension savings to clear the debt. Now, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, has forecast that around 600,000 borrowers with interest-only deals will see their loans mature by 2020, with a third of those, so that's 200,000, facing shortfalls expected to be over £50,000. Now, under the old pension rules, banks could not insist that pension savings were used to pay off interest-only mortgage. As you mentioned earlier, there is a tax-free portion, 25%, which can be used. But it wasn't possible to turn the, the rest of that pension into cash. But the concern is now that borrowers facing shortfalls, they don't have sufficient repayment vehicles, their, their endowments that they set up just haven't performed, will face pressure from their banks to consider using the pension pot to clear the mortgage. But mortgage rates are very low at the moment, so isn't there a case for saying, as long as the monthly repayments are affordable in the, in the sort of scheme of things, that mortgage should just be retained and, and sort of eroded gradually rather than paid off in one chunk? There are a few factors in the background to at least encourage people at the moment to think about using pensions to pay down mortgages because interest rates have been historically low for five years, but they're not going to stay like that forever. So as they increase, that will mean that people will struggle to make their monthly mortgage repayments. And if you've got uh, an interest-only loan that's due to uh, expire after 2020, there are more than 3 million people um, up to that period. It could be a lot harder for you to negotiate a repayment, a switch to um, a capital repayment deal with your lender. What's to stop someone in their sort of earlier life taking out an interest-only mortgage and then using the pension as the repayment vehicle? I mean, years ago in the 90s, you would have had an endowment with profit scheme. Um, to do that. But if, with a pension, you could effectively get tax relief on your mortgage. It's very attractive, isn't it? Um, in theory, yes. In theory, is it, it is. Simple? And techni- technically, there's nothing to stop you using cash release from a pension flexibly under the rules to pay off your mortgage. But there is one big uh, break on that, which people will have to bear in mind, is that after the tax-free cash is taken, that any savings taken from your pension will be subject to income tax. Now, for example, if you have a £50,000 outstanding debt on your mortgage and you've got £50,000 in your pension, you take it out all at once, you will have to pay high rate tax on that. And that doesn't look so attractive. Indeed. And finally, Joe, if you're using a pension fund to clear debt in this way, what are you then supposed to live on in retirement? Doesn't it rather defeat the objects of saving into a pension in the first place? Well, it looks attractive, doesn't it, to um, have, have this cash available, but it's not like an ISA. It, it, it does come with um, tax consequences, however you take it out, as income tax. And there are also concerns to be considered if you die and you've got money left in pensions, what the debt penalties may be on that. So even while it uh, has opened up options for you to use your pension cash to uh, pay off debt, um, you have to consider whether you know, you're still able to live, how your income, uh, you will draw income in retirement, uh, and also how that money will pass on to your heirs if that's a consideration. So it is quite a complex set of considerations that need to be taken. Thanks very much, Joe. There's more on the question of pensions versus mortgages in this weekend's FT Money, which is part of the Weekend FT. 
You can also read online at ft.com forward slash money or on tablet devices using our new web app. Still to come on the show, there's nothing like it in the UK, but what do stock market experts make of Alibaba? First though, if you can't afford to buy a house, fear not. You can still participate in the great British property boom by either lending to someone who can or by investing in a particular development or property. How so? By using peer-to-peer finance. P2P, as it's widely known, matches lenders or investors with those needing finances using websites and bypassing banks. It's been growing very rapidly. Just last week, the total amount of money raised in the UK through P2P passed the £2 billion mark. Its adherents, who include celebrities such as Kevin MacLeod from Channel 4's Grand Designs, say that borrowers get quicker decisions and lenders get better returns. Many P2P websites promise rates in the high single digits, which is way above what you would get in a conventional savings account. Many of the property-based sites promise that they are doing rigorous checks on borrowers and the buildings they're investing in and say that this form of P2P is actually safer because it's backed by physical property. Detractors say that these returns are just a reward for taking big risks and that as the industry grows in size, so the quality of projects will fall and the failure rates will increase. Lenders and investors could be left high and dry because P2P investments are not covered by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. Kate Allen, who writes about commercial and residential property for the Financial Times, has been looking at the P2P property revolution in more detail. Kate, P2P property investment basically falls into into several different camps. Can you sort of outline those for us, please? So the biggest area um, where peer-to-peer lenders are breaking through into property lending is in the buy-to-let market um, and also bridging loans because they say that they can put finance into place much more quickly than traditional lenders can, which means that if a developer wants to snap up a property quickly, they can they can do that and then you can refinance by putting longer-term finance in place afterwards. Also, finance for development on two- to three-year terms is quite becoming quite common. And last but not least, commercial property, which you would have thought might involve buildings that are too large for peer-to-peer lending. Commercial property is actually now starting to get in on the act as well. Yeah, that's right. There have been some fairly big deals in this space so far, haven't there? Yes, well, um, peer-to-peer lender Wellesley this summer made the biggest loan to date of £10.8 million to a developer called Kersfield to redevelop a large property in Bristol. And also you mentioned Kevin MacLeod. His HAB housing development firm raised nearly £2 million last year for business development. We talk about peer-to-peer as if it's all sort of um, homogenous, but actually there's two different activities going on here, aren't there? There's lending and there's investing. Yes, so the main group of lenders in the space so far have been peer-to-peer, and they're, they're very clear that they invest investors' money across a portfolio of properties, not to one individual property. And also it is lending, it's not equity finance. Whereas more recently we've seen the rise of crowdfunding websites, which tend to take a more populist tone, and which enable investors to invest in individual properties by taking equity stakes in them and this is where a lot of the rhetoric around if you can't afford to buy a home yourself you can still get exposure to the housing market comes from. Traditionally many investors of sort of modest means and by modest means I mean people who can't actually afford to buy a building themselves would get exposure to property as an asset class via a property fund or an investment trust and uh, and that vehicle would own a portfolio of real estate and you'd get some sort of inbuilt diversification there. The sort of investments you're describing in single properties um, I mean that sounds quite risky isn't it? Have retail investors really got the skills to sort of to manage that level of risk? 
I think the crucial reassurance that is there for anyone considering this kind of investment is that your lending is secured lending, unlike other types of peer-to-peer, which can be unsecured consumer lending. This is secured against property. So in the worst case scenario, either you or the peer-to-peer lender who is managing your investment can take over ownership of that property, see it through, sell up the assets and hopefully realise your cash. Obviously, if you've chosen to invest in the redevelopment, say, of an individual property through a crowdfunding website, that responsibility to do that may fall on your shoulders. Now, that all sounds very reassuring. You know, it's backed by bricks and mortar. But has this kind of safety net really been tested out yet? Not hugely. A lot of people are very reassured by the fact that since this spring, this kind of lending has become FCA regulated. But because it's not part of the financial services compensation scheme, as you mentioned, some investment advisors do fear that it could lull people into a false sense of security. And finally, bearing that in mind, I mean, you must get asked about property all the time. Is this the sort of thing you would recommend to a friend? If my friend had their last £100 to invest, I'd probably suggest they put it elsewhere. But if they've got plenty of other investments and they fancied having a bit of a flutter on Britain's property market recovery, then it's certainly one way of doing that. Thanks very much. That was Kate Allen, the FT's property correspondent. We're always keen to hear your views too. If you've had good or bad experiences of P2P websites or property investments, do drop us an email. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. Earlier this week, the online fashion retailer ASOS had another profit warning, prompting another fall in its share price. This one-time market darling has now seen its stock drop from over £60 a share to just over 20 But across the Atlantic, another e-commerce company is joining the stock market in a blaze of publicity. Alibaba is the biggest online retailer in the world's biggest market, China. Last year, it made the equivalent of $9 billion in revenue and about $5 billion in adjusted net profit. And this year, it will probably make 50% more again. The company's founder, Jack Ma, has chosen to list the company's shares not in Hong Kong, the usual place for such listings, but in New York. The shares will start trading on Friday in what is likely to be the biggest technology IPO ever. And there's nothing to stop UK investors, providing your stockbroker offers the facility, from buying them once they've started trading. Are they worth a look? I'm joined now by Chris Beecham, a market analyst at IG. Chris, first of all, tell us a bit about the structure of this um, IPO. It's a little different from the usual arrangements, isn't it? It certainly isn't your average listing on the New York Stock Exchange. You're not actually investing directly in the company itself. You're actually listing in a shell company uh, that's sort of owned by the management of Alibaba itself. The question's raised about whether you are actually following the performance of the company or rather you're actually, um, shall we say, becoming involved with the management, which is a very different prospect given, I think, the dominance that Jack Ma and the management have over the operations of the firm. It also means, doesn't it, that the... the the sort of special interest vehicle isn't effectively eligible for inclusion in many of the main uh, indices. So you don't have demand coming through from the index trackers for that. So it sort of highlights the fact that a lot of demand for Alibaba has been driven by the fact they're only selling a small amount of the company. Um, Therefore, most of the company remains outside the sphere to investors. um, And that will reduce demand and I think diminishes the appeal really uh, for investors that you don't have the substantial backing from many of the big funds that will be looking normally to invest in other any other normal IPO. Well, those factors don't appear to have dampened the razzmatazz around the launch of the company in uh, New York. What do you think its, um, its appeal is? Is it the technology? Is it the fact that people think, well, oh, here's another Facebook or another Twitter? Or is it the exposure to China? 
I think it partially lies in the appeal of both. If you put an IPO up and you have the phrase technology and China in it, that automatically makes it even more of an appealing share to investors than it would be normally. If you were to ask whether it should be classified as Chinese or as a tech IPO, I think you'd still come down towards the Chinese element, really. Alibaba's strength relies on the connections it has in China. Outside of China, those connections don't really apply. And in terms of the technology, it hasn't been too much of an innovator aside from simply providing uh, the background and the marketplace for Chinese companies to connect uh, with one another. So yes, the Chinese element does have a major attraction to it, I think. Uh, But once you take Alibaba out of its home environment, you may not see uh, the same growth. Now, you mentioned Jack Ma a moment ago, who's a sort of very uh, charismatic founder uh, of the company. Now, some people will say, um, well, the fact that he still owns so much of it is effectively a bad thing. It means he's uh, very much in control. And other people would say, well, the fact that he's selling a chunk of shares as part of the IPO is also a bad thing because, you know, if he's selling, why should I be buying? What's your take on that? Is, Is his sort of continued participation good or bad? He clearly isn't stepping back from the management of the company, but the sign that any insider is deciding to sell part of his um, allocation within the IPO does send, I think, a warning signal uh, to investors. If you look at the money that's being raised in the IPO, um, around 43% of it is going back to insiders, which is an even bigger figure than that for Facebook, around 40%. I think that sends major signals um, that you have a management that is perhaps not quite as aligned with the interests of shareholders as it should be. That said, of course, he isn't stepping back entirely from the management, so it still remains very much a creature of Jack Ma. It's his creation, and it will be the driving force of his vision um, that will play a part in the years to come. Finally, Chris, um, we in the UK can't actually buy shares in the IPO itself, um, but we could, of course, buy them uh, in the aftermarkets or we could uh, sort of take a derivatives position based on their um, performance. Is chasing shares in the aftermarket likely to be uh, rewarding, in your view, based on the experience of other tech IPOs like Twitter and Facebook? If you look at previous IPOs, it's usually a very bad idea to start chasing the shares once the IPO hype is out of the way. Uh, Facebook's steady uh, drop in its share price is the most instructive, but Twitter, after an initial pop, did drop by over 50% um, in terms of its valuation. So most investors, if they're looking for the long term, uh, would be probably best advised to wait uh, for the hype to subside and for the first sort of one or two sets of quarterly results. Thanks very much. That was Chris Beecham, market strategist at IG. We should, of course, point out that investments in overseas shares can bring foreign exchange risk too and should only really be contemplated as part of a suitably diversified portfolio. There's just a little time left to tell you a bit more about this weekend's paper. We look at whether things like ethical and sharia investing are worthwhile or just expensive fads. And is there any point in owning bank shares? Some think that technological disruption means profits and dividends will never really recover. John Lee looks at what directors' deals can tell us, and of course we'll have the latest on the investment implications of the referendum in Scotland. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now it's goodbye from me, Joe, Kate and our special guest Chris Beecham. For more downloads go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.